Welcome to Chatterbox, a podcast by the Wolfpack Project. We are Nottingham's leading youth mental health and loneliness charity, releasing content on the first of every month. Please follow and subscribe on your podcast app so that you never miss an episode. Welcome to Chatterbox, the podcast all about Nottingham mental health and well-being. And today I am joined by the lovely Etienne Stott, Olympic champion environmental activist, who's going to chat to us about his career, the stuff that he's doing now, and hopefully give you loads of useful tips about well-being and mental health for the future. Etienne, it's lovely having you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's really nice to be here. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be able to share a little bit Uh, hopefully what I know that might help other people. So the first part of the podcast is the chatterbox. So this is where I'm going to throw some random questions that have kind of been collated by the Wolfpack Project team, just to kind of give people a bit of a feel for places that you will have explored in Nottingham, highlights of where you kind of go. But I just thought for the people listening, a bit of a um, kind of heads up is that you have moved out of Nottingham recently is that right? Yeah so I mean I, I still I sort of a bit in between places but uh, my girlfriend she lives down in, in Dorset which is a long way from Nottingham but I still have huge connections and roots in Nottingham and uh, yeah it's still really cool place although where I am now is also really cool I'm very lucky. So I suppose that kind of first question is what do you miss about Nottingham now that you are down in Dorset? Well I tell you you know I was back in Nottingham just recently and I went uh, kayaking at the Whitewater Centre at Home Pierpont um, the country park there just on the side of West Bridgeford and it's been a while since I've been on Whitewater in a kayak and I just really really enjoyed it and I just uh you know, and it was nice to be back. I, I really like Nottingham. I live in the meadows facing out onto the embankment and it's just, they've closed the road there recently or, or semi-closed it. And now it's just a really great place for the public to come and hang out. And I'm guessing, you know, in the sunny days and the bank holidays, people are hanging out there by the river, hopefully not leaving loads of rubbish and one single use barbecues, uh, you know, and just hanging out. It's just a really cool place of beautiful trees it is a nice it is a nice city we are very lucky to have you know have it in, in the way that it is although of course it's not perfect as well <laughs> I think there are always things that could be better about where we live and but then sometimes when we move we just realize that even where we've moved to is no better in some areas but nicer in nicer in others when you are in Nottingham where is your favorite place to get a drink from and hang out for a bit where would you say your favorite cafe or bar or yeah I mean it's a good question I'm a very busy person and I don't hang out very much um I tend to be like doing stuff but when I do get the chance uh, I really like to go to the Crocus Cafe in Lenton um I really like the project that is there you know I like what they're doing the food is super super good always kind of blows your mind as kind of like the taste and the flavors and the and the style and I really like the, you know, as I say, I like the, I like what they're doing, you know, the, the social ethos behind what they're doing. I think it's really meaningful. And I'm, you know, even simply eating some super tasty food from there is actually doing something really good in the community. Uh, so, yeah, that's probably one of my favorite kind of go to places if I, I get to go and spend some time doing that sort of thing. And I suppose linked in with that, because one of the other questions was going to be your favorite kind of independent place in Nottingham. Would Croker's Cafe kind of fit? that independent place that you would opt to go to or are there other independent in Nottingham that you would also 
go back to? Yeah, I think that's probably is my, my favourite place. But up in, in Hockley, there's quite a few different places there. There's a super cool pizza place and a pub there that are like so it will probably transpire in this interview. I will explain that I'm a vegan, I eat plant-based food. And so where I go to eat, I like to support businesses that are running, making that sort of food, which is invariably always mind-blowingly tasty because, you know, everyone's trying to explain and show that plant-based food is super good for you, super good for the planet, super good for the animals and super tasty. So yeah, and there's, there's another place I like to go to called the Prickly Pear as well. I really like that one. Um, there's, there's, there's loads of places we've got. We're really lucky in Nottingham. There's a lot of choices for like places that you can have tasty food. And, and I'm not a big drinker either, but there's lots of places where you can get tasty beer and, and other stuff as well, for, for if you like that sort of thing. And Hockley seems to be kind of the heartbeat for that in kind of city centre Nottingham. So you've got Prickly Pear, there's Fox Cafe, there's a few other places not far. That's a kind of good pointer for anyone who's not yet explored Hockley, do so. You'll hopefully find a hidden gem. So we've kind of already mentioned about um, the canoeing and Home Pierre Point. Would you say that that is your favourite kind of green, blue space in the city or are there other favourite spaces that are more green or blue that you like to go to? Yeah, so I do think the the country park in, in Nottingham where the, where the Watersport Centre is a bit of a hidden gem. I think it's a really nice place. There's the area called the Hook, which is just on the back of West Bridgeford near the river, which is a nice place. One of the places I really like, which I think is kind of interesting, is Woolerton Park. It reminds me a little bit of not you know with a very small uh, way, but of like Central Park in in New York, uh, which you see in the movies. I don't you know I've been there once and uh, it's interesting because you can still see all the skyscrapers. But uh, I think that in Woolerton Park it is like like a literally like a kind of wild place in many ways in the middle or quite in the middle of the near the city centre. And I really like chance that you can walk there and see these beautiful you know deers and the, these creatures that are living. Obviously, a relatively managed life, but you can kind of feel that they're living, a, you know, quite natural way. And there's lots of trees. And, you know, I really like Woolerton Hall. I think it's kind of an interesting place. You know, it always makes me think again about, you know, how in the olden days, some really, 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 really rich people managed to like buy a massive area of Nottingham and just keep it for their own self as a kind of park. And that's kind of happening now, but in slightly different ways. But I think it, yeah, we're lucky in Nottingham. There's loads and loads of places uh, in the north, like Cork Abbey and those places and the Peak District as well is although a bit further away from Nottingham, you know, with a bit of, you know, a train journey or whatever, you can get to, you know, you can start to get out into places that are a bit more wild and we are lucky like that. But I think I try to keep things as local as I can and, and where I live, you know, um, Woolerton Park and, and the Home Pier Pond and, and the Embankment, as I said, are really nice places. I've definitely seen deer kind of just on the golf course that's part of Woolerton Park, just in the way, and they don't care. It is, they're like, this is our spot. We were here first and interrupt people's golf, which I'm I'm glad I'm not a big golfer. And I'm always like, oh, there's a patch of green. Let's go explore it. And then it happens to be a golf course. I'm like, oh, that's really disappointing. What's something new that you found in Dorset? So if anyone ever came out of Nottingham and were exploring another part of the country, what would you recommend that you have found in Dorset that people check out? Well, I mean, what's blown me away here is just the sea 
Uh, Nottingham is a long way from the sea. Well, not too bad, is it? You can get across to you know to Lincoln, uh, Lincolnshire, whatever. But the the sea here is very beautiful. I think because it's not the North Sea, the water is very blue, and even on a kind of less sunshiny day, the sea looks really. It kind of like a kind of Mediterranean vibe here, and you know, I'm I think it's wonderful. And obviously, lots of tourists come here, but there are lots of places that you can get to that are a little bit quieter. And there's some really beautiful forests around here as well that are, you know, I guess people come to see the sea, not the forests. So I've really enjoyed, and I'm enjoying learning and exploring around here bit by bit. Again, I'm very busy and get to do these things a little bit less than I would perhaps want in some ways, but. Yeah, I would recommend, you know, getting on the sea. You know, there's lots of different ways getting in it, getting on it, snorkeling, sailing, windsurfing, kayaking, stand-up paddleboarding. It's all good stuff. I think Nottingham is the most landlocked county. Furthest away from the sea. Although I think Derbyshire and Leicestershire aren't that far behind being well, in the You've got the National but... Water Sports Centre. So, you know, get down there and try all these things down there. Absolutely. So we've already heard from Etienne a little bit about how much he enjoys being by water and um, is enjoying the sea down in Dorset. In this next section, we're going to be chatting to him about his journey to becoming an Olympic champion and what he is now really busy doing with the rest of his time kind of stepping away from that. So Etienne, for people who don't know, what is the sport that you competed in in the Olympics? My sport is called canoe slalom or whitewater slalom. And it's where you basically race down a whitewater rapid against the clock. You have to go through a course that's marked out by they're called gates that hang over the water and you've got to kind of thread your way through them and if you touch any of the gates or miss them out you get time penalties added on so you've basically got to go as fast as you can but also precisely i won in the london olympics in the category called two-man canoeing or c2 c for canoe two for two-man my crewmate was called tim bailey or is called tim bailey he now lives on the other side of canada uh, we won that race that's our first olympics that we did uh, we tried to go to other ones um, both as individuals as and also as a as a team but we never 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 made it but we made it to the what i think is the best one we were you know amazingly successful we were good a very good crew we were very strong you know, if i'd say we didn't expect to win but we performed we prepared extremely well for that particular challenge in olympics is a particular sort of you know, kind of sub challenge of your sport. And we did a particularly good job of, of getting ready for that. And, you know, in our sport, things, you know, on the day, it's really unpredictable. Uh, you're never quite sure what's going to happen. And we knew that if we were, you know, at the level that we were, we were paddling at, we probably could win a medal. And in the end, it turned out to be we won the gold medal. And yeah, wow, still amazing to think that that happened to us. It's always nice when you find other people on your journey who kind of fit that kind of headspace and ambition and drive because I think that can then help spur each other on whereas if you end up kind of being yoked slightly differently and one of you is like maybe slightly more ambitious or the other one's pulling in a different direction it doesn't always work the same and so it's amazing that you kind of found Tim and you kind of had that shared drive. We grew up together because Tim and I were the same age. So we were actually racing against each other when we were younger in the junior team and we were kind of battling each other. Tim was a bit better than me, but we both kind of more or less kind of conked out our individual careers, kind of came towards their end more or less at the same time. And it was just opportunity, but Tim and I were best friends by that time. We'd been 
actually went to university together. We didn't realize we were doing that, but we ended up at Nottingham University and the same course together. So we became really good buddies. And so when we switch modes from competing against each other to working together, the shared values, which I think is really important. We had a shared values, a shared ethos. And as exactly as you say, you know, it's quite rare to find people, you know, who are aligned with your ambitions, aligned with the level of work that you want to do, but also aligned in the kind of method, the values and the not just the the what and the why, but also the how was really well aligned with Tim and I. And, that, and we really made a good team like that as well. To have that as part of a winning formula as well, is it almost the cherry on the top, really, to kind of get those medals? So you've kind of said that it takes a long time to go from competing individually and then finding that combined career with Tim. So what was the journey like from deciding, okay, we're going to do this together, we're going to do slalom canoeing, to okay let's try and enter the olympics because i sometimes think we we watch it if we people do watch it on tv and there's all different ages and they have all of these stats about how long how many olympics people have been in or whether it's people's first olympics but we don't really understand the journey it can take people to get there unless we follow that sport ourselves quite closely so what was the journey like for you and tim to get to the 2012 London Olympics. So we'd already been kayakers, Tim and I, for about 10 years competitively. Tim a bit longer, actually. He'd been kayaking for even longer than me. He started when he was quite a bit younger. When we switched together, when we joined together, we had an eye on the Beijing Olympics in 2008. was our first, well, first go. We teamed up just after the Athens Olympics in 2004. So we had four years to build to the Beijing Games. We worked very, very hard. We were actually getting quite good. And we thought that we had a chance of being successful at the Beijing Olympics, that we would be able to go and, and perhaps even win a medal in the 2008 Games. We had you know, evidence. We competed with some of the best crews in the world in, in races before the Beijing Games. But when it came down to the moment to qualify our place for the Beijing Games, we, we failed um, brutally. Uh, we, we really crashed and burned, as the, uh, as the expression goes. We, we choked. Uh, we just did not have the mental toughness and mental skills that were required we were fast enough probably we were physically strong enough but we just couldn't handle the pressure and intensity of the competition and, and most of that really was the way we'd set it up in our minds we hadn't really managed to get it organized in a healthy way so very often this you know the drive to succeed fear of failure fear of of the unknown can really be very difficult can be very un and unhealthy for a person, a very unhealthy combination. And we we didn't make it to the Beijing Games and we, we went into a quite a period of, I say depression, probably with a small B, a small D, should I say, where we were just utterly miserable for about, it took us half a year, maybe even more of a year to really fully get over it. We put so much into it, it was so difficult. But what we realised, and I think this is a really important element here, is that mental toughness or resilience and those sorts of things People get the idea from out there that these are things that you either have or you don't have. And I really dispute that. I, I and, and Tim, myself as well, we, we started working with a sports psychologist called Katie Warriner, who was really cool. But we were also on our journey of ourselves, of our own journey of, of learning. And we realized that, uh, well, we decided basically that actually mental toughness is a skill and resilience these things they are skills and i say skills to, to break it down to the point that a skill is something that you start off basically bad at and by repeating 
and learning you get better at. But a skill just like shooting a basketball into a hoop, you have to practice. You have to shoot the basketball into the hoop many thousands of times. When it comes to mental resilience and toughness, there is this thing that it's very uncomfortable to practice those things because you have to go to a place where it's uncomfortable and basically not very pleasant, stressful, put yourself under that pressure on into those positions where you don't feel comfortable. You have to learn and reflect on it. And what very often people do, there's kind of two pathways. People don't realize that it's a skill and therefore avoid those difficult situations. So don't get to practice. And then lo and behold, when they come to those situations, they find themselves really uncomfortable and stressed and they say, oh, I can't handle it. I'm not good at it. And therefore they stop doing that. The other thing that people do is they go into it, feel all stressed and uncomfortable and difficult, but don't really have the support to make sense of those situations. And they often draw conclusions like, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm not a good person, or I don't have this ability, or, um, oh, I should go and do something else or whatever. This isn't for me. You know, maybe this sport isn't for you, or this activity isn't for you, but I would suggest it probably is as good as anything else. But what we really need, and this is something that happens in sports quite often, not always, and probably happens in other areas of endeavour sometimes, but not always, is that you need to find someone who can help you to make sense of these stressful, complicated situations and the emotions that are, are turfed up from them. And then by doing that, you can start to learn and make sense of them in a healthy way and an adaptive way. So just like a muscle that you train in the gym, this skill is something that you train by putting it under strain and letting it recover, locking in the gains, as the saying goes. And in this case, the locking in the gains doesn't come from eating you know, food and, and resting. It comes from processing and understanding and coming to sensible conclusions. And so this was a really key, you know, massively important thing here is that there's lots of knowledge out there about how to, you know, ideas, philosophies, whatever you want to call you know, even actually just techniques to help people, but it often requires, you know, the exposure to those things. And that's what we really learned. So after the, the Beijing failure, as I call it, we realized that we had to go out there and practice and expose ourselves because up to this point, we'd really avoided these situations as much as we could. And we'd sort of seen it as something, you know, competitions we had to do to be successful, but that we weren't really super enjoying them. So we started pushing more and more, trying to find ways to expose ourselves to this and also we at the same time after the Beijing Olympics a new crew came along who were two fantastic athletes called David Florence and Richard Hounslow they teamed up as a crew to kind of challenge us to go to the London Olympics which we knew was around the corner and actually that was very uncomfortable we found that really hard I certainly found it very challenging because I felt threatened by them simply but we also realized that they would help us to give us this exposure to challenge us and to learn these skills that we needed. This was a key element of the growth and the learning that we needed to go towards the London Games, which would eventually allow us to be successful. We also had you know, quite a few injury issues. I dislocated my shoulder uh, the year before the Olympics and in doing shoulder dislocation is like a career-threatening injury I had to have a shoulder surgery which actually happened well and but there was a whole you know massively difficult process around that Tim also had some injury issues there was a constant we uh, we felt a lot of pressure to to be you know we wanted desperately to go to Olympics 
who desperately wanted to be successful and not have the same pain and, and horrendously difficult experience that we had trying to get to the Beijing Olympics. And I hope that's a long answer, but I hope that's interesting. I think it's really important to talk about. It's a different side that maybe people might not have heard, kind of shared about that journey to becoming a top athlete and being the best on the day to win a gold medal we don't often i think people are sharing about it more there's been you know key gymnasts um like Simone Biles that have kind of been chatting a bit more and you know tennis players that are talking a bit more about kind of how they're dealing with the pressures but that's kind of recent years but even 10 years ago that was still something that was important to you to go through that and it was it was there and available and there are for anyone listening there are loads of resources out there to kind of help with that so you've gone through all of this journey you've had shoulder surgery tim's had his injuries you get to the olympics for kind of people who maybe weren't so i was at uni at the time so i wasn't able to get down to be part of the Olympics I think I was in the middle of a placement so I kind of caught glimpses on the TV and that was about it what was it actually like being part of the kind of Olympic village and the kind of community in the sort of athletes and the village there what was it like yeah I mean it, it is amazing. I think it's worth saying that in our sport, our venue was outside of the main Olympic venue. So we actually didn't move into the village until after our event had finished uh, because we had to stay closer to our venue at Lee Valley. I think one of the interesting things is that people may not realise, but you know, certainly I felt you know, in this country, Olympic sports is very highly professionalised. I was there to do my job. You know, it was my job, which was my life. It was my heart, my my love my my everything and a canoe race at the olympics is very similar to a canoe race in the world championships and other canoe races whatever you know it's basically the same thing but there's all this extra stuff added on top and it's important to prepare for the ways that the olympics is different than normal events but really getting into it was we were just focused on what we were doing really closely focused and we're really clear about what we wanted to do how we wanted to do it and we were very clear about what was going to be true after the Olympics, no matter what the level of performance was. So no matter how our performance, whether it was good, bad or indifferent, we we were clear about who we were, you know, that we were valued and good people, who was our important people, who were our kind of main crew who would love us and, you know, value us regardless of what happened at the Olympics. And that gave us a really great foundation. Um, the Olympics themselves is a completely, you know, bananas experience, especially having won it up until the moment that you win. It's like a crazy experience because there's all this extra stuff you've got to do, you know, like your accreditations and you've got to, your uniform and then more press and media. Afterwards, you know, the thing that's interesting about the Olympics is when you win an Olympic medal, it changes everything except you. You know, the way that the world relates to you is very different. People think you're an Olympic champion now and that must make you X, Y and Z, this, that and the other. And most people have very positive ideas about what an Olympic champion is. And I, I think they're very, very good. But what you really are basically the same person. So you're in this very strange situation I often describe it you know you're, you're kind of like in the eye of this storm you're basically going oh my god we've just won the olympics this is a dream come true essentially you know they wouldn't say it quite as romantically but then everything else is changing all around you you know the way you're never really seen the same ever again and that is really incredible but it can be quite disorientating i'm sure for some people but we were very clear about who we were and what we were doing so we were kind of we had to come through this storm 
good or bad or indifferent, whichever way, it would be really interesting to know. But the Olympics is just this wonderful thing. You know, there's so many, so much joy, so much appreciation, so much good energy, I would describe it. It's just a fantastic thing. And, you know, we did all sorts of cool things on the back of the Olympics. So then how long did it kind of take for sort of the Olympic win to kind of fizzle out from kind of media and maybe having to do a few more extra bits and bobs to then working out next steps from that? In a way, it carries on for a long time. You know, you're still an Olympic champion. You know, if it's something I was really interested in doing now, I could probably still be like um, probably making money off of and, and kind of keeping it going. There's lots and lots of ways, uh, you know, lots of doors that open. Um, for us, we we did you know, around about probably a few months, three or four months of really, you know, full on, we didn't do any training, we just took every opportunity. And we were really wanting one of the main things we wanted to do was to promote our sport, it only gets that moment in the spotlight once in a while, we really wanted to kind of make hay on that. And then but we wanted also to kind of get back to canoeing, and we wanted to continue to, you know, develop and use our winning formula as it seemed to be at that time. So we wanted to get back to the 2013 season, and we we did. We were actually quite good in 2013 until I dislocated my other shoulder, and that was kind of the end of our partnership, as it turned out, because Tim decided he wanted to retire. Uh, I did wanted to carry on for a little bit longer, and I got a new crewmate, uh, a guy called Mark. Uh, Proctor, who's super cool, a really nice guy and a really good athlete. We teamed up. But the post-Olympic period, you know, as I say, your life is never really the same. You'll always be an Olympic champion. And if you want to use that in any particular way, you can. And I think it's an interesting time to choose, you know, what do you want to do with this power that you have as an athlete this pedestal that you've been raised up onto if you want to put it like that what are you going to use it for are you going to use it for you know selling breakfast cereals or are you going to use it for good re- other, other other reasons you know i'm not saying selling breakfast cereals is particularly bad but i think there's better things that people can do with that that olympic power as such so you have made kind of the transition into doing more stuff around the environment and activism and kind of encouraging people to really think about their kind of footprint on the world. So at what point did you start pushing into more of that following kind of injury and taking a step back from athletics or was it always something that kind of was there in the background but you've now been able to fully step into so it was a little bit in the background with me i was quite aware that sports is a very kind of indulgent thing and and you know it's only really for yourself but i what i wanted to do in the last years of my career was to learn stuff particularly to kind of polish it off so that when i retired I had an idea that I wanted to take this knowledge and offer it and bring it to the to the wider world, the world beyond sports and also in, in sport as well. I did a degree in psychology with the Open University, which was really good to try and formalise my knowledge. So when I retired, I was finishing this degree and I was going out there, but I just started to realise that the future that you know I was being asked to talk about was not going to be the case. You know, where we are in a deep crisis right now we're in a in a we're and a catastrophe is unfolding our planet is dying we're killing our planet and i realized it didn't make sense to go and be speaking about a future that as i see it and as the science tells it it doesn't exist you know we we have to change or we are going to be changed so i just decided to start doing whatever it was that made sense to me to try to stop this from happening because it seemed to me completely intolerable to imagine that 
we're going to just mess everything up. I met this guy and we, we started this thing called Champions for Earth, which is about supporting or, or, or realizing the power of sports and supporting athletes to use that power to look after the planet. And I also joined Extinction Rebellion, which is a protest organization, you know, certainly in some people's eyes, somewhat controversial, but I believe that methods and the ideas behind it are absolutely sensible and, and correct. And I just started to get more and more involved in that because, you know, as an athlete, you know, you have a goal and you try to take the shortest path from where you are to that goal. And to me, it seemed that, you know, what's called nonviolent direct action, you know, peaceful protesting is absolutely justified given the situation that we're in. And you said about, you know, our personal footprint, this is, is important. But what we really need to realize is that it is our governments that are allowing these companies, these corporations to destroy our planet and the governments are letting them do it and they're trying to hide that reality from ordinary people like you and me and the people listening to this to this podcast that the real truth of the situation is being hidden because the people who are making an absolute fortune out of it right now are doing very well and don't want that to stop but we have to stop it otherwise our planet is going to be finished and our civilization you know will will be under great stress already is under great stress in some parts of the world and i just thought this is wrong you know i'm a i'm a good person i cannot you know, just stand by, you know, some people call it eco anxiety, which, you know, I think is an interesting thing, but this unsettled feeling of dissonance where, you know, you're just looking around and like, why is it that we've got so many people who can't afford to heat their homes and eat their, you know, feed their kids? Why is it we've got homeless people on the street? Why is it we've got food banks? Why is it people are dying of air pollution? Why is there so much in our rivers being pumped in by the water companies? Blah, blah, blah. All these questions don't sit right with me and with many other people. And then you have to interrogate actually what is a healthy way of approaching that because it's actually very unhealthy to ignore it. It's very unhealthy to try and suppress it. Thank you for listening to Chatterbox, a podcast by the Wolfpack Project. You can find us on social media. We are chatter.boxpodcast or you can link to us from the Wolfpack Project website, which is thewolfpackproject.org.uk. We'd love to hear how the conversation has inspired you or things that you've learned. So do engage with us. Do also remember to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you download your podcast from so that you never miss a new episode. So for people who might be grappling with some of those thoughts of kind of injustices that they're seeing um, either close to them or around the world, what would you say are maybe some of the first steps that people can take to maybe putting some action into processing how they're feeling, but also being able to feel like they're making a better change for them and the people around them? Yeah, I mean, this is a really tough question. I think the first thing to do is to try to not hide from it, lean into it and just allow yourself. It's okay to feel pretty damn bad about what's going on right now. In fact, if you're not feeling bad, it's actually probably more abnormal. You know, it's a sign of a bad adaptation. People who think everything's fine, are, are, it's a strange situation where it's kind of a topsy-turvy. I think the next thing you have to try to do is try to find ways that you can act consistently with your beliefs is you know this authenticity aspect where you are um, trying to perhaps make changes in your own life that kind of makes sense you know so people might say well I'm going to eat less meat and dairy or I'm going to fly less you know i don't do either of those things you know to me i'm able to 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 stop i try to use public transport blah 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 all these different things you try 
but recognizing that there's also a limit to those things this is another way that people are made to feel bad is that you cannot not have an impact in this world and also it's very difficult to be it's practically impossible to be perfect and then you have to start to zoom out and interrogate why what's going on in this situation where why doesn't the people who have the power in our lives help us to do what we really want. So why do we have such rubbish public transport systems? Why do we have such complicated recycling systems? Why is our energy you know, not renewable? Why are we still exploring um, for oil and gas when you know, the United Nations have told us not to? Why is our uh, government ignoring the advice of the scientists? And once you start to realise or start to see those things, probably a lot of people realise actually this whole catastrophe it is being done to us by the people who are rich and powerful, who are not letting the solutions and not letting the pathway that is required be, be travelled down. You probably will realise that what needs to happen next is a political problem. This isn't just a technical problem. We know what we need to do. This is a political problem. And then it becomes more complicated. Well, how do we do politics? It's not just about voting Labour or Conservative, because I think neither of those things are actually very useful in this situation. So you're starting to learn and, and interrogate. And what I would encourage people to do is not to be closed-minded. Don't just hear what I'm saying. Look into it. I do think you know extinction rebellion is can be trusted, but read about the you know the science, not the not the disinformation that's put out there by the oil and gas industry, but the real information, the, the peer-reviewed science. Look into history. How does change happen? How can changes be made in societies when it's urgent and rapid? And come to your own conclusions. Do something that makes sense to you. But what we have to do, all of us, every single one of us is we, it, we do have to kind of search a bit inside for some bravery because it is quite scary. It isn't a particularly nice situation. If we don't do anything, where we will find ourselves will be just so much worse. So yeah, it almost goes back to the point you were making earlier about practice and putting yourself into those situations where you can have a go, process, figure out, okay, is this something that I can make sustainable in my life or is there do I need to try something else and bringing people along you on that journey who can also encourage you and support you. Well, it also leads us nicely into um, the five ways to wellbeing, which is five things that people in the mental health and wellbeing space promote as simple ways that if we put them into practice, um, and it comes down to this practicing and trying to put it into our daily lives that hopefully will help improve with our well-being and increase our resilience and um, the more that we do it so connect is the first one that's on the on the five ways to well-being so we've kind of mentioned that some of this stuff can be a bit isolating and it's important to bring people with us on our journeys whether that's sporting environmental activism how are some of the ways that you keep connected to the important people in your life at the moment yeah i think that is a really hard thing right and i think just understanding that it is hard nowadays despite this kind of again this topsy-turvy way that it's supposed to be easier with social media and with all these different ways it's actually really hard people are busy people are stressed and that makes it harder to connect and just accepting that that is the case and not thinking that you're weird or bad or wrong because you're finding that difficult i think is an important element acceptance of yourself and your situation is really important it comes down to making that effort and there's no i don't think there's a real easy way for me to say this you know if there's people that you like to be around and that you find 
you know, connection, comfort with. It very often will not happen naturally or easily for them thing to continue. You've got to put some effort in. And that, that sounds ridiculous. You know, it's no advice at all. Just put some effort in, make it happen. Um, that's not good advice. But I think recognizing that it will take effort to do and that, you know, you might have to not do something else in order to maintain this relationship or these relationships, I think is is good to recognise. Having been in an Olympian and having sport as a huge part of your life, how do you stay active now that you've transitioned out of that and have a very busy schedule with everything else? How do you stay active? I, I recognise this is really hard and I've been surprised actually in, and since I retired how hard it is to be to carve that time out when you're engaged with something that's really important you know and real life is incredibly busy and difficult. I set myself fairly modest goals. I try to exercise properly you know as in like a you know get my running shorts on or go kayaking or go windsurfing or whatever once a week is my actually my target to do that i think that's fairly modest you know and i try to set you know i look at the weather and i decide at the start of the week when it, which day it is that i think is going to be the nicest for the thing that i want to do and i try and make sure that i figure my my plans out around that you know or you know around the restrictions that i have i also have a kind of little idea in my head and i never miss a chance to do exercise if it presents to me so by that I mean if I get the chance to walk somewhere or if I have to if I'm slightly late you know I don't mind like trotting along trying to do a bit of exercise you know if there's stuff that needs lifting and moving around I try to you know do those things if somebody you know my neighbor right now they're getting a house extension and if they need help I go and help you know lift and bricks around or doing some form of you know activity like that that presents itself I try to spot little micro exercise opportunities and you've got to be a bit careful with your body when you're doing that you know don't just you know lift massive things and burst your back or whatever you know don't do some horrendous bend from the knees yeah 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 don't do some horrendous sprint when you've not warmed up otherwise you're going to hurt yourself learning is another key part of the five ways to well-being because we're we're always on a journey of discovering new things whether that's just interesting facts or new ways of doing something i am now totally going to give that iron man shuffle a go and just see how i how i find it has there been anything else interesting that you've learned recently that you just realized you didn't know before can be related to anything what i learned is that there's so many things to learn my girlfriend's son asked me to look up about cuttlefish yesterday we found one of those bones it's like a sort of long thin white bone you find them on the seaside very often and we started looking at them this is one of the good things about the internet and the world we live in there's so much information and i was just learning about cuttlefish and how they're actually very they're sentient they feel they're intelligent they can change colors and they only live for two years they only make once in their lives they're just you know beautiful clever and amazing creatures and there's so much out there to learn and just actually for some reason when I was a kid and probably even now you know people kind of turn their noses up at you know learning and think oh it's a bit nerdy or whatever I think it's celebrated a bit more nowadays but just ask someone if you someone's doing something interesting say well I was actually speaking to the guy next door who was doing their extension he's a he's a stonemason and I started asking him all about you know stonemasonry stonemasonry and just being curious and celebrating human beings are very curious it's just somehow in our society sometimes that is frowned upon but just asking a question 
because if someone's in you know someone enjoys what they do and they they will be able to tell you about why they like it and just you know why do you like doing what you're doing i'd love to know and then you'll find something and it will be inspiring almost certainly and there's so many places where we can learn stuff so york um minsters had loads of stonework repaired and replaced and i remember going up a couple of years ago whether it was in the pandemic or not i can't remember but they had the people out who were doing all of the stonework repairs in front so there was a bit of a barrier obviously for health and safety and protection but you could see them working on the bits that they were repairing and it had bits of information up and it was just really nice to be able to watch them and see how they did it and read a bit and i may never do anything like that but it's having that opportunity to be able to see that and ask those questions just ask someone it's really really simple sometimes nerve-wracking but hopefully you'll you'll learn something interesting on the other end the fourth way to well-being is giving and um, this can be giving of time of money of knowledge of skills it can be big stuff so like a regular volunteering thing but it could also just be little moments and um, obviously you do a lot on the kind of sharing of your knowledge and using who you are and the kind of reputation of being an Olympian to help spread your message further. Are there other ways that you notice that you give of who you are or of your time to other things outside of the eco-activism world? I mean, this is the main area and I give my time and I think it's, you know, finding something to give your time meaningfully to, I think is really important, whatever means something to you. But I think things that are most meaningful in human lives is things that have a, a positive impact on other people. I think that's a really easy way to find something that is meaningful. I think the kind of taking notice thing is a tricky business because there's a lot right now that we can take notice of that's actually pretty tough to take notice of again i think it's okay to be quite troubled by what you see when you take notice but be knowing that deliberately or hiding away from what you're seeing is really not good for you and then as we've discussed trying to find other people or trying to find a pathway that is taking meaningful action to make the world better you we have to accept we can't solve everything as individuals but when we come together with other people we can take notice because we can be supported to take notice and then act because just noticing without action or without some response is quite bad i think so i would encourage people to take notice open themselves and then find a, a healthy pathway for what they feel which will probably be a bit uncomfortable and unhealthy but working that through is is what i would say is important rather than just pretending it doesn't work trying in some way to make the world a better place and, and have a positive impact i think that's basically what we can strive to do in this in this world where suffering is very common and, and normal in fact um, we have to find a way to accommodate and live with a bit of discomfort and try to act in the best way to reduce it out there so hopefully for people that have been listening and um, through this conversation there's been loads that i've definitely taken away from this chat and hopefully there will be things little things big things that you can take away and maybe start implementing into your own lives whether it's stuff around the kind of practice of resilience or some of the kind of ways to well-being that we've just talked through hopefully there'll be lots of things yeah is there somewhere that people you would recommend for people wanting to start making steps in activism where they could go and learn more or try something out is there a recommendation from you as to where people can go on their journey 
I mean, I think it's really a, a tricky question, but I certainly think if you if you want to understand and learn a bit more about what Extinction Rebellion is really about, visiting that website, there's lots of information on there that can kind of help to, you know, and I certainly, you know, I'm, I, I recommend it. I believe in it really strongly. I think it's important. But there is also just, if you're going to go out there and research into the, you know, climate and nature emergency, just make sure you're using, you know, reputable sources and go to places that are backed by peer-reviewed science, not by, know some uh, some some scientists who claim to have knowledge on this that the evidence is overwhelmingly in one area that's that is happening it's us and it's going to be bad we need to solve it if things are saying that differently you should have a, a measure of skepticism about that and i think also understanding researching the history of social movements is really interesting history is really interesting in this in this time now i know there's been quite a bit on in positive news the magazine that comes out around that whole kind of social movement stuff and the history behind things and trying to share good research in this it's one of the things that i follow on social media so that i'm getting some of the good stuff as well as seeing friends and other things that are happening in the world so i I follow them on social media but they seem to fit that kind of reputable sharing you know stuff that hopefully people can use and take away and then as has seemed to have become a common theme with our final recommendation for people what is your go-to vegan takeaway i'm a sucker just for chips the tasty tasty chips from the fish and chip shop but no fish that's where i like i'm i still and i have it with vegan mayonnaise which is even worse um but i really like it so i'm sim- keeping it simple but loving that sometimes the simple things are the best things and i also not necessarily whether it's vegan or not vegan but chips and mayo is also up there for me but i would probably add a bit of fish as well because i love love fish if it's sustainably caught and looked after so been lovely having you on the podcast etienne we'll make sure that things that we've mentioned throughout our chat such as extinction rebellion um, and a few other things like the headspace and all of that will be in the description so you can check it out so if you want to find out more you just go to the description and check out all of those links etienne it's been lovely having you thank you for coming on thank you Thank you for listening to Chatterbox, a podcast by the Wolfpack Project. You can find us on social media. We are chatter.boxpodcast or you can link to us from the Wolfpack Project website, which is wolfpackproject.org.uk. We'd love to hear how the conversation has inspired you or things that you've learned. So do engage with us. Do also remember to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you download your podcast from so that you never miss a new episode.